Church on the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who is not ashamed handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. So glad to be here on this day in August. And if you are listening to us for the first time, uh, this is a live call in talk show. You can either send us your questions directly at TBL, that stands for the Bible line, at wagp.net. Many questions are emailed to us, or you can call us, you can dictate your question to uh, Deb, who's with us today, or you can go on the air live. The number locally is 843-525-1859. So, Rick, uh, it's good to be back. Uh, Let's go ahead and we'll get started today. Very good. Uh, Dennis from Bluffton writes, Pastor Brogy, I have a friend that believes the Bible has references that support the flat earth theory. What do you think? I think your friend is wrong. (laughs) But believe it or not, there are some Christians who uh, espouse this on occasion. I actually addressed this issue when we were uh, working our way through Revelation. We still are. We're just in the 13th chapter. In fact, this Sunday we deal with the Mark of the Beast 666, and it's a very, very important study this coming Lord's Day. But I did address this issue when we were in Revelation chapter 7, And I think I gave a pretty detailed answer, but let me just highlight a couple things that I said in that sermon. Uh, The chapter opens with these words, After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth, or on the sea, or on any tree." So, of course, people who hate the Bible, hate God, hate Christ, love to attack the Bible, and they're fond of pointing out this phrase, the four corners of the earth. Uh, It's actually used, uh, I think, three times in the Bible, twice in the Revelation, and once by the prophet Isaiah. But they say, well, this proves the Bible is inaccurate, that these men were really not inspired by God. They thought the earth was flat. Um, and therefore, this gives them reason why they shouldn't submit to the Bible's authority. Well, let me first say it is true that there are Christians in the history of the church, typically in the Middle Ages, not today, that taught a, a flat world. And they used passages like this to justify it. It largely came out of Roman Catholicism, which for the most part was prominent during the Middle Ages. But they are known for things less than true and less than biblical, though Christopher Columbus, uh, who at that time was reading and pouring over the scriptures, was not afraid to sail from Spain uh, towards uh, the Americas, as they were later called, because he believed what the scripture had revealed, that the world was round. So let me just uh, comment first on this text, and then maybe we can broaden it just a little bit. 
So, you know, again, the skeptic will say, you know, you poor, stupid, ignorant Christians, you know, you, you believe in a four-cornered flat earth. Uh, so how do we respond to that? Well, number one, uh, this verse, when it says four corners, actually three times uses the word four, if you look carefully in the verse. It, it speaks uh, first of four angels, four corners, and uh, the four winds of the earth. So the three are connected together. And so what he's underscoring is basically the wind directions. Uh, sometimes we, uh, in a non-technical sense, speak of a flat earth when we say, well, the wind is coming out of the west. Again, uh, we, we are affirming the same thing that the Earth has various wind directions and so forth. So this is just an idiom that's being used here. It's a, it's a figure of speech, uh, just like when we say from every section of the globe. Uh, we're, we're not putting the globe into quadrants. It's, it's around, it's sphere, spherical. Uh, the psalmist speaks about, may God bless us still so that the ends of the earth will fear him. The ends of the earth, again, is this a flat world? No, he, he's just uh, affirming that the ends of the earth re- refers to all the peoples, even the remote, remotest parts of the earth. And when God gathers his people from the four ends, four corners of the world, as in the Olivet Discourse, from the ends of the earth, he's again speaking that no one will be missed. Uh, he will gather them all. But the Bible affirms that the world is round. Isaiah chapter 40, let me just turn there for a moment. This is a good, uh, more than a proof text. A proof text is when you take a verse and you make a doctrine out of it, but the verse is taken out of context. That's typically how the term is used. But this, nonetheless, is a good verse to prove uh, what God uh, affirms. Uh, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. So God describes the earth as round. And again, you know, we live in a day where it's not difficult to perceive that. So when you meet one of these Christians that think, you know, and occasionally you still meet these people, uh, they think the world is flat. Ask them, how, how do you explain the various time zones in the world? How is it that California is just having a sunrise, you know, that they're three hours in front of uh, before us and uh, because the world's round. And so there are time zones because it's one sun, but it's raising over in a world that is spinning, that is round in structure. Uh, likewise, Proverbs 8 in verse 27 affirms the roundness of the world. It says, when he established the heavens, he's reviewing the, uh, the creation I was there when he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep, when out of the uh, water masses, God created a land mass that he describes as circular in motion. Even the Lord Jesus in the New Testament affirms the roundness of the world uh, by implication in the statement that he makes in, let me see if I can find it here, Luke chapter 17, and uh, he is referring to his return from heaven. Think about this just for a second. Uh, He said, on that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. And so, again, he's describing two people are in the field. One will be taken. One will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken. One will be left. 
he makes this statement, I tell you on that night. So first he said on that day. Now he says, I tell you on that night, there will be two in bed. One will be taken, one will be left. Why? Because when Jesus comes back, he will come back to a world that in some parts of the world, it will be nighttime. In other parts of the world, it will be daytime. So, you know, we speak of his returning uh, into a round world just by implication of the statements that he made. So the Bible teaches the world is round. Uh, it's very, very clear. But if you want to get more detail, listen to my message on Revelation chapter 7 because I covered this in far more detail. Very good. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And an anonymous listener from Columbia writes, Is it wrong for my husband and I to attend different churches? Well, yes and no. That sounds rather political, but it's not. Um, Let me first affirm what God says about a married couple. In Genesis 2, verse 24, God created them, male and female, and he said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. Likewise, when you step into the New Testament, the Apostle Paul will say, uh, of men, no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it just like Christ does the church because we are members of his body. And so it is when we get married, we become one flesh. It doesn't ignore the fact that there are still two people with two different personalities, but there's a mysterious oneness that takes place just as we are connected to Christ inseparably. Jesus said to uh, the uh, Apostle Paul before on the Damascus Road, and he appeared to him before he was renamed, and he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? How did he ever persecute Jesus? Never laid a finger on Jesus, but whatever he did to the least of these, his brethren, he did to the Lord Jesus. And so Paul will quote Genesis, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The mystery is great. I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. And so this is an, an illustration of the kind of picture that an ideal relationship should manifest. And the unity of two becoming one in, in, in holy matrimony is really seen in its highest form in the spiritual realm. And so a couple should really be united in terms of their spiritual choices. And this is why God says a believer should marry an unbeliever. Uh, the uh, Bible very clearly affirms that. But with that said, sometimes people get married. They're both lost. One comes to genuine faith. The other is still lost. They may be religious, but lost. So sometimes, again, if you can take a, a point and you exaggerate it, you can step back and see the truth. Let's just say... I married Audrey, and we were both lost, and we were both Mormons. And then Audrey became a believer and received Jesus as her Lord, and she tries to convince me to become a believer, and I don't. And would it be right for her to continue to go to the Mormon church? Absolutely not. They are sheer heretics. They deny every major facet of orthodox historical Christianity. So for her to be in the will of God, she would need to be with Bible-believing Christians on Sunday morning. That's somewhat of an extreme example, but it makes my point. Uh, sadly, sometimes the the two family uh, scenario uh, in that you've got two people attending two different churches often manifests itself between Roman Catholics and Protestants. And sometimes you have a Protestant who marries a Roman Catholic 
and they agreed typically because of the teaching of the Roman Church that they'll raise them Catholic, at least for the early years, and then they quote-unquote let the children decide. Usually couples who do that, they're both lost. Uh, the Protestant is, as well as the Catholic, because number one, he would not have married a Roman Catholic if he really believed the Bible. That's not to say that all Roman Catholics are lost, but the Bible does teach biblical separation. Uh, there are born-again Roman Catholics who, on their own, apart from what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, because the Roman Catholic Church denies justification by grace alone through faith alone. That was one of the functions of the Council of Trent that met from 1548 to 1562 over the course of a few decades. And it was basically uh, to uh, counter what Martin Luther and some of the Protestant reformers were saying. You say, well, does that old Council of Trent still hold? Yes, it was reaffirmed at Vatican I and Vatican II. So the Roman Church has never changed its position on salvation by grace alone through faith alone. And this is why it was a very foolish document that evangelicals back in the 90s uh, signed with Roman Catholics for unity because God tells us that when there is false doctrine, we are to biblically separate. And so in some marriages, you have a Catholic married to a Protestant. And again, sometimes the situation is post-marriage. Someone comes to faith before the other. Maybe the Roman Catholic, maybe you have two Roman Catholics and one of the Catholics is born again and Again, you can believe a lot of wrong doctrine and still go to heaven. You could be a born-again Catholic and think the Pope is God's man. He's not. Uh, The Bible doesn't teach popery, but you could believe that and still go to heaven. You could believe that Mary was a perpetual virgin and go to heaven. You could believe in the real presence at the Lord's Supper and still go to heaven. You could believe a lot of wrong things and still go to heaven, but you cannot deny salvation by grace alone through faith alone and be counted as a true, genuine, born-again Christian. And so two Catholics are married, one gets saved, they start growing, start reading the Bible, and they say, hmm, there's a lot of inconsistency here between what I'm hearing in Mass on a weekly basis and what I'm reading in the Bible, and then they choose to go to an evangelical church. That's the right thing to do. So, But, but let me bring it down on another level, uh, because sometimes you have a husband and a wife who are both born again, and there's not doctrinal issues in terms of the gospel. Uh, they basically have different tastes in reference to music or preaching or worship styles or children's programs or none of those things are significant enough to break up the family. And the wife should really, one, share her thoughts. Maybe she thinks one church, the one she goes to, is healthier than the other or a better fit But differing tastes are not a reason to go to another church. And ultimately, she should follow her husband's leadership since he is the head of the home. And as a couple, you'd want to, you know, really examine the scriptures and make your decision in light of that. Uh, The Bible tells us in 1 Thessalonians that we're to examine everything carefully and hold fast to that which is good, kalos. You could render it true as in other places in the New Testament, that which is excellent, that which is sound. And so ideally you attend a church where there's what we call sound or healthy doctrine. Paul speaks to Timothy uh, several occasions in the two letters he writes to him about sound doctrine. It's actually a medical term in the first century, what we would call healthy doctrine. So some churches have the gospel, 
but <laughs> maybe they're not as healthy as they could be in certain doctrinal fields. Anyway, I hope that helps. It's a really good question that you're asking, and it's one that a couple needs to get on the same page on. Uh, we took off a few weeks, but um, last time we were on the air, a uh, listener by the name of Pat in Bluffton uh, said that you had mentioned in a, actually a pre-recorded uh, Bible line that many churches today, unfortunately, don't have the gospel message. What precisely do you mean when you use the word have? Okay, well, um, first we have to define what we mean by the gospel. Uh, the word euangelizo and euangelion, the verb and the noun, uh, one to preach the gospel, the other referring to the gospel. The word gospel is somewhat of a religious word today. So if we spoke of gospel music, we would be typically speaking of Christian-oriented music. But the word gospel just meant good news in the first century, and it had many secular connotations. There is literature outside of the Bible that you can read that sometimes shed light on the meaning of a word. Now, many times you don't have to go outside of the Bible because sometimes the same word is used repeatedly in the Bible, uh, in the Greek New Testament. Sometimes they, we have what we call a hapax legomena. That's a word that's used just once in the Greek New Testament. So you don't have any other verses to compare it to in the New Testament, unless sometimes you can go to the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, and you can see how people understood the Greek in in that realm, and it would shed some light on it. But with that said, if you look in secular literature, for instance, if a soldier was in a war and the war was over, they could say to you, I have gospel. Oh, really? What's your gospel? What's your good news? Well, my good news is the war is over. A couple could say, oh, I have gospel. What's your gospel? Uh, We're going to have a baby. Or a student could say, I've got gospel. What's your gospel? I got a hundred on the exam. Oh, fantastic. So it just meant good news. Now, Greek is a highly precise language, and so when God, by his spirit, inspires what we call the article, the word the, uh, we learned it in grammar school as the pointing word. It's the word that points specifically. The gospel changes everything. If I ask you for a pen, you could give me any pen that you could find, but if I ask you for the pen, then you know I have a specific writing instrument that's in view. The gospel is a specific Um, good news that God is referring to. And so I don't have to wonder what the gospel is. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the chapter opens with these words, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, it's articular, which I preach to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which you are saved. Wonderful. What's the gospel that they believe by which they are saved? I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. In three words, the gospel is death, burial, and resurrection, period. That's the gospel. Why is that important? Paul will say in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is the power to save you. So when I say a church has the gospel, what I'm saying is is they are acknowledging that man's efforts, man's human works can in no way, shape, or form save you. That it is only the death, burial, and resurrection plus nothing. And understand there are some churches that add something to the gospel. They say you have to be baptized in order to be saved. That's heresy. 
They say you have to join the church in order to be saved. That's heresy. You have to speak in tongues in order to be saved. That's heresy. That's a Jesus plus plan. But Jesus shouts from the cross to tell us die. If you visit the Rockefeller Museum in Jerusalem, and by the way, we're going God willing, unless the rapture happens, uh, to Israel in 2019. Uh, We'll have the brochures released later this month. On the last Sunday of the month, they'll be available for those who are interested. Uh, Contact us through Search the Scriptures if that's something you want to be kept abreast of. But we will have an informational meeting on the first Sunday. I know it's Labor Day weekend, but the first Sunday in uh, September. I think it's September the 2nd. It will also be live streamed. It will happen after the 11 o'clock service. And so we'll have people, and that's something we want to begin promoting, Rick. I should have told you on Search the Scriptures on the close that those interested in Israel, and uh, they can live stream us that Sunday morning at approximately uh, 1250. In either case, um, it's a meeting uh, that we'll give our details too, as we share with you our, our, our trip to Israel. So um, put that in mind. I, I, I'll run way down a rabbit trail if I hang on this anymore. So let's just go on to the next question. Very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, would love to hear some live callers this morning. We had the little lightning strike a few weeks ago, and we've got some brand new equipment. I'm just itching to try it out on a yeah, live Yeah, we caller. had to be off the air because we didn't. our equipment was not functioning, but we're back on, and so, yes. In the meantime, we did have a dictated question. A caller said they were talking with a friend about your message in Revelation from last Sunday, and they were saying that the second beast was actually America. How do you answer this? I did suggest they listen to the last week. <laughs> well, they, they should listen to it. Uh, You know, there are people who just go crazy with uh, the Word of God, and you can make the Bible mean anything you want it to mean if you take verses out of context. America is not in view. Uh, What he has in view here is one who is also not only called the second beast, but he's called the false prophet. He's not dealing with America. I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. This is in deference to the first beast that comes up out of the sea. And uh, he had two horns, unlike the first beast that had ten. He's like a lamb. He's meek. He's mild. Uh, But Jesus said, they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. And so he speaks as a dragon. The dragon, of course, is repeatedly used to identify Satan. So he speaks like the evil one. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. And he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship The first beast whose fatal wound was healed. The function of the second beast is to point men to the first beast. There are about 30 titles. Some would say anywhere from 32 to 38. Some of that's just translation issues from English, uh, from Hebrew or from Greek into English. But there's over 30 titles for the uh, man of sin, the son of perdition, we typically cut to the chase. We just call him the Antichrist. And he is a leader who is going to have a miracle done to him. He's going to have a fatal wound that was healed, supernaturally healed. This man who was dead will come back to life. And of course, the second piece is going to point people to this first beast. You really have an unholy trinity here. 
Satan who duplicates the role of God the Son of God the Father, the Antichrist who duplicates the role of God the Son, and the second beast, he's also called a few times in the Revelation the false prophet. It's articular because it's not just any old false prophet, but the false prophet, the false prophet of all false prophets who will duplicate the role of God, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't draw men to himself to call attention to himself. He draws men to Christ. He takes of Christ and he glorifies him. And so this second piece performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down of heaven. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth. These these are miracles that are happening. This has nothing to do with a nation. This has nothing to do with some country. This is dealing with a person, and he's using personal pronouns. He, this second beast, not some country, deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which was given to him to form to perform in the presence of the the first beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make the image of the beast who had the wound healed, and he's come to life. And so, and then he makes the the, the image that's set up in the temple to speak. This is a person. This is not some country. So your your friend wasn't even close. But again, people like to get dramatic. They like to go crazy and wild to sell books. You know, five, six years ago, we had John Hagee and others, you know, writing books on the blood moons. And none of it came true. He was just wrong. Uh, now, he doesn't talk about it now, but when he wanted to make a half a million dollars on the sale of that book, it was it was front and center. So, you know, there's a lot of wackos out there who are just far from the truth. Now, I'm grateful for some things that John Hagee has done, but, you know, I, I, he shouldn't be a pastor, number one. He left his, he divorced his first wife with two kids, married his secretary, and then, you know, he's right back in the pulpit. You know, he's not even qualified to be a pastor, and a lot of his exegesis is very sloppy and less than faithful to the Word of God. Let's go to the next question. All right, very good. Mike from Okatee writes, Someone I invited to church attended the Beaufort campus a few Sundays ago, and after church, he asked me for a good study Bible. I told him I used the MacArthur Study Bible. Do you suggest this one, or is there another one you prefer? Well, if you go into our bookstore on Sunday morning, we do buy our Bibles at cost, like a book, the same price a bookstore would pay for them, but we don't mark them up. And so um, you can go there to uh, the resource room on Sunday morning. We do have the MacArthur Study Bible. It's very sound, and it is available in the New American Standard, the translation that John MacArthur has preached out of most of his life. Uh, it's an excellent study scripture Bible. We have the Ryrie Study Bible and a few others. So, um, But if you uh, were to choose the Ryrie Study Bible, does that mean that I agree with every note in the Ryrie Study Bible? No, I, I don't. Uh, but he has a lot of good things to say. You'll never find two preachers who agree 100% on everything. And some things are left open to maybe more than one position. Uh, but with that said, um, it's an excellent study Bible. And I would uh, endorse it. Very good. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. Or you can email us at tbl at wagp.us and uh, we'll get that message. Um, And then Robert, listening all the way in Riverside, California, writes, 
Pastor, how does the Bible say that Abraham offered his only son Isaac when he had another son, Ishmael? All right, that's a great question. So let me go back to the book of Barashit. The very first word in the Bible is Barashit, and we translate it in the beginning. And so uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so this is the book of beginnings in much of the foundational theology that is underscored in the whole Bible is unfolded here. But we'll come back to this question before I get too far away, since we have a live caller who's been buzzing through. Indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. I have a, kind of a two questions. I I wonder what uh, Pastor Brody's information would be, uh, knowledge would be, of, uh, estimation of the population of the earth at the time of the flood, Noah's flood. I've heard so many different accounts. Uh, I wonder what Pastor Rogers' input is. And uh, the second question is Matthew 27, 52, and 53 is, is Jesus Christ's crucifixion when the tombs are opened. And after the resurrection, people went into town from, from the tombs. I've heard teaching, I don't know whether to trust or not, that they were part of the first fruits, the sheath, the first fruits with Jesus uh, when he was resurrected. And it was an outstanding, spirit-filled sermon Sunday, which it always is, but it was particularly fantastic. Thank you. Well, appreciate that and your encouragement. Good, two really, really good questions. Uh, Certainly, biblicists differ on the exact population uh, in Noah's day and how large it had grown I have read figures anywhere from 1 billion to 2 billion people. I don't think anyone can say dogmatically, but I wouldn't be surprised if indeed it was in the range of 2 billion people because if you look at the current population rate and growth models in terms of you know how populations with wars, which we've always had, and disease and famines and plagues and so forth, and you look at the exponential growth, uh, it wouldn't be that far off. I, I think that would be the generous number of five, uh, 2 billion people, and that would certainly track with today's current population with uh, eight people coming off the ark, three of his sons with three daughters and Uh, following the multiplicity of uh, people who come out of their loins. And there are some people who've done some studies on this. Ken Ham has a pretty decent answer from Answers in Genesis. And you might want to just Google that population growth from Noah. That might be useful to you. But again, no one can be dogmatic. You're going to read numbers everywhere, anywhere from 500 million to 2 billion. In either case, let me go to your uh, second question, something I think I can be dogmatic on, and that concerns the question from Matthew chapter 27. Uh, let me just turn there very quickly. And of course, um, it's an issue that concerns Jesus uh, coming out of the grave and what took place after uh, he immediately came out of the grave. Let me pick it up just in verse uh, 45. It says, Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the whole land until the ninth hour. So at 12 noon, at midday, it became like midnight from 12 to 3. And most would argue that this was the time when the sin of the world was laid upon Christ. 
about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and taking a sponge, he, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And that's that's a sermon in itself, and I won't go there why they thought it could be Elijah. But Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn into from top to bottom. The access to God now has been provided. No longer need to go through a high priest. And the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, and notice the wording very carefully, because only a literal translation like the King James, New King James, um, ESV, um, though it does paraphrase a little more than the NAS, and the NAS brings it out. NIV, for instance, which is uh, a translation that tries to shoot at two goals, readability and literalness renders the verse quite differently to make it readable, but in making it readable, they do an injustice to the verse because the scripture is very clear in the Greek New Testament that coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. So the first to come out of the tomb, the first fruits of those from the dead, of course, is the Lord Jesus. He is the first one ever to come out of the grave in a resurrection body, and that's an important distinction which we discussed some on Sunday because there are eight people five in the old uh, three in the Old Testament five in the New Testament who come back to life Elijah raises someone from the dead Elisha raises someone from the dead and then someone was put on the bones of the prophet and he comes back to life uh, again not by uh, accident that God records those three and then five are raised in the New Testament. Jesus raises three, Peter one, Paul one, but all those that are raised ultimately are only raised to life. They're not resurrected to life. And this is one of the things we were pointing out on Sunday in reference to the fatal wound that the Antichrist will receive three times over. It's underscored uh, that he's really dead. And so some commentators not wanting to violate the truth that only God can resurrect people from the dead say that, no, he wasn't really dead. It just appeared he was dead. No, he was really dead. And that's the miracle of it. And that's what uh, Satan is going to use. But he's raised to life. He's not resurrected to life. The resurrection is something that only God can perform. And hours coming when the Son of Man will uh, call up from the dead into resurrection bodies. That's something only God can do. And God chose after his son came out of the grave, who raised his son up? Well, the spirit is given credit. The father is given credit. The son is given credit. Jesus said, no one will take my life. I have authority to lay it down and then to take it back up. The spirit is given credit. The father raised him. Um, you know, the members of the Trinity are inseparable but God also, in keeping with the Feast of first fruits, and this is not by accident. I think that God uh, especially puts this in Matthew's gospel. Why would he put it in Matthew, and why is this phrase not found in Mark or Luke or John? Because it's a Jewish gospel. 
And so he never really explains a lot of Jewish customs where Mark and Luke will make some comment about a Jewish custom. Uh, John will very oftentimes use the Roman clock instead of the Hebrew clock. And, and so, you know, timing is everything uh, in words or everything. And so here in this Jewish gospel, he is demonstrating how Jesus fulfilled the feast of first fruits where, you know, what they would do on that day is they would bring a single stalk that would be blessed and then a handful of grain that would be offered to the Lord. And it was a picture of the harvest that was going to follow. And first fruits went for 50 days. And the 50th day of first fruits, it went seven weeks. And then the 50th day following first fruits came uh, Shavuot, or what we call Pentecost. And on the 50th day, the Spirit of God came. And and uh, again, this was all part of God's timing. There are feasts that took place in the fall and feasts that took place in the spring. And the spring feasts were all fulfilled in Christ's first coming. It's not by accident that he dies on Passover. He's in the tomb on the Feast of Unliving Bread. And he rises from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits. And 50 days later at Pentecost, the Spirit of God is sent. That was all pictured in the Old Testament. And so Christ was that single stock and this handful of Old Testament saints, the Bible doesn't say what happens to them. Uh, so it is an argument from silence, but I think it is fair to argue since they are in resurrection bodies that never die, that God must have shortly thereafter taken them on up to heaven uh, because otherwise they'd still be here because they could never, ever die. Uh, but they were carried on up to heaven. So again, this is all in keeping with the Feast of First Fruits, and it's a powerful, powerful illustration. There are still the fall feasts that need to be fulfilled, and they will be fulfilled after the church is taken out, after the rapture. They will be fulfilled in the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy, that seven-year period called in the Old Testament the time of Jacob's trouble, called in the New Testament. We usually refer to it as the tribulation or the great tribulation period. Very good. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And I may have another live caller. Let's see if uh, there are. So I, I hear the phone like dinging yep. a little bit well, here. Well, I, I just turned that dinger off. Okay. So we're, we're good Thank to go. You. It's still making some final settings. All right. And we do have a live caller. Let's, Let's go, go to them, them now. Yeah, Thanks for holding. Good. good morning. You're you still there, listener? Oh, man, I lost him. I hit the wrong button. That was your fault, That was Rick. my fault, yeah. If that caller wants to call us back, we'll take their phone call again. All right. Good so idea. gadgets that are new, it's like you get a new iPhone or something. You got you got to learn your way through it a little bit, Rick. That's for sure. That thing looks supersonic, that it phone. It's, that's, it's, that's got, a, it's got some beauty to it. It's, it's got it's, additional line opportunities there. So um, if we expand, then we can go ahead and get some more. Most of you don't know, but Rick is a techno junko. He, he just... <laughs> loves technology and he, he loves the glamour of it too and that's a glamorous looking phone system so there we go. i'm taking it right now there you go are you there caller well no, they went they, yeah yeah thanks for calling go ahead we're listening okay my question is how do you determine a person who actually claims to have a word of knowledge and an example, like the pastor said, he said to the congregation, he said that God told him that 70% of the church members will stay behind if the Lord comes today because they're not living right. Or a young man or evangelist says that he'll reveal somebody's sin, but you know that 
that that is not really true. They came from God because somebody already mentioned it to somebody three months before or to somebody else before he even said it to the to the to the congregation. So how do you know if it's really from God or not? The pastor is what he said, and the young evangelist is what he said. How can you tell me this for what's really from God or not? Like, they both, because, uh, because the Church of God, Christian uh, Tennessee teaches that they said the only condition of a person will not lose their salvation if you make a mistake or a boo-boo type sin. And yeah. he, uh, that's the only type. Yeah, if so... If other type of condition, you, you lose it. Okay, yeah, those, those are great questions. So let me just see if I can unwrap them just a little bit and we'll we'll drill down and try to think our way through this biblically. Uh, again, this is not a criticism to the Church of God because we have some sincere brethren that love the Lord that are a part of that denomination, though there are different churches of God. There are three denominations, one of which denies the doctrine of the Trinity. So I'm not referring to them as brethren, but those that are in under that title, Church of God, Tennessee, Church of God, Cleveland, whatever, there are some good godly people in it. But one of the characteristics, and again, I don't want to be wholesale here, but it is their denominational position, but there are always people who deviate from their denomination as a local assembly because they do recognize autonomy like Baptists do. Uh, But one of their uh, typical doctrines is that you can lose your salvation. And so, number one, it is a denomination that is rooted in experience rather than a denomination that is rooted solely on Scripture. Now, there's nothing wrong with experience unless the experience contradicts what God has revealed in Scripture. We were on Sunday in our exposition of the Revelation speaking about the false prophets that Jesus said would be uh, exponentially found uh, in the last of the last days. And he warns in Matthew 24, 24, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. So there are going to be people, and there are people, who come and do miracles and uh, do the extraordinary and the experience. I, I, I saw a clip yesterday of this evangelist and I mean, they just look like dominoes <laughs> falling over hundreds of people in just like in, in a perfect wave, all falling down on the ground, supposedly being slain in the spirit. Did that happen? Sure, it happened. Was it of God? Absolutely not. And so if I were a false prophet and I came into your church and let's say there's a man who's a quadriplegic and I come and lay hands on him and he's supernaturally healed. How do you know if that miracle was done by Satan or whether it was done by a true man of God? The person's doctrine. Is the doctrine consistent with what God has revealed in Scripture? And so there are people who perform miracles. Jesus talks about them in Matthew chapter 7 at the end of time when they meet God and they think they're actually going to heaven. Many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord. And by the way, when you use the person's name twice, Mary, Mary, Martha, Martha, you were claiming to have a a friendship with them. And that's the essence of eternal life. This is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God in Christ whom you have sent. All men know God, Paul says in Romans 1, in a creative sense, in a conscience sense. And so all men believe in God in that respect. Forget the 
few people who say they're agnostics or atheists. They're not. And when they become Christians and they still toe that line, that that's either ignorance or just pride trying to make their um, testimonies sound dramatic. Um, because they didn't, you know, I wasn't, they weren't true agnostics. Now, maybe there are things they didn't know anything about, uh, but the, all men believe in God. Lay that aside. These are people who claim not just a knowledge of God, but a personal relationship with God. Lord, Lord, didn't we preach, prophesy in your name, your name cast out demons, in your name perform many miracles. And Jesus doesn't deny that they did all of those things. Today, if we had someone who is preaching in the name of the Lord, casting out demons, doing miracles, we'd say, wow, what a spirit-filled ministry. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Please note what it does not say when he quotes here Psalm uh, chapter 6. He does not say, I once knew you. Depart from me, you who practice. I never knew you. These are people who were never born again. Well, how do you explain the miracles? Satan did them. Satan did them through them. And I guarantee if, again, if you pull back the veneer, you'd find out their doctrine was bad as well. Now, the doctrine of eternal security is a biblical truth. And those who say you can lose your salvation represent less than 10% of born-again Christians worldwide. Uh, In fact, almost for 1,500 years of church history, the only position that Christians held was that once we're saved, we're always saved. Now, that's an abused doctrine. And people cling to that. They say, well, I was saved when I was 12, and I'm eternally secure, and I can't lose my salvation. And because I am, it really doesn't matter how I live. I may not have much when I get to heaven in terms of reward, but I'm going to heaven because once saved, always saved. Listen, someone who thinks and speaks that way is typically someone who's never been saved. Because if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old life has passed away. All things have become new. Your life changes more than just externally, religiously, but internally. See, these people were externally religious, but they practiced lawlessness. What's lawlessness? First John says sin is lawlessness. In other words, there was a lifestyle of rebellion and sin in their hearts. Christian can sin, but to have a lifestyle of rebelliousness really is a reference to someone who has never met the Lord. Um, So Titus says they profess to know him, but by their deeds, by their lifestyle, they deny him. But the doctrine of eternal security, and you might want to listen, because this is really a critical doctrine. Uh, You might want to listen, go to searchthescriptures.org and type under the search bar, back to basics, and you'll find the Back to Basics series. In the very first three weeks, I deal with the subject of the doctrine of eternal security, that once we're saved, we're always saved. And I deal with even with those handful of verses that people use to say that you can lose your salvation. You can't lose it. So right off, your pastor, whoever he is, is just wrong to say that, you know, you could do a boo-boo that could sever your eternal relationship with God. Listen to this verse. Jesus said, he who believes in me has eternal life. Not will have, but has right now, present tense. Because you see, eternal life is not heaven. Eternal life is a relationship with the Lord. It's knowing the Lord is your personal savior. And once you enter into that relationship, it's eternal. You can't lose something that's eternal. It's an oxymoron to say, well, I have something that's eternal, but I lost it. No, it's called in the old English everlasting life. That is life that lasts forever. And there are many passages that affirm our eternal security. 
some just directly like that one, or, you know, uh, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Uh, if you're really one of Christ's sheep, then you know him, not just in a um, theological academic way, but you know him spiritually. Why? Because you've been born again and the spirit lives in you and he's come to uh, to indwell you. And then he says, I give. We don't earn because eternal life is not earned. I give eternal life to them. Listen, I can almost guarantee if I went to your church, if your pastor is really teaching what you just said and and again, I don't know what church you go to or who your pastor is. I bet if I did a survey in your church, how sure are you go to heaven? Probably over 50% would say not 100. And if I asked the people, why should God let you into heaven? It would be a God plus plan, a Jesus plus plan. Well, I believe Jesus died and some wouldn't even give Jesus. They just say, I'm a good person trying to obey the commandments. That's a lost person. That's someone who's never been born again, because to become a Christian, you must acknowledge your absolute spiritual bankruptcy and put your faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, plus nothing that you do. I give. It's not earned eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Look, all that look to the Son, behold the Son, and believe in him, will be raised up on the last day. And if you read that in John 5, there's no leakage at all. Without exception, if you're saved, you will be raised up. And if you're saved, genuinely saved, you will be raptured. Why? Because you have a new nature. If I were to put um, various metals in the ground, um, zinc and copper and iron and gold and silver and and put you know some on the surface of the ground and some a few inches below the ground and I took one of those big car magnets that you see in a junkyard where they suck a car up into the magnet and I put that over the ground only those metals either slightly under the ground or those metals on top of the ground that have the same nature as the magnet will be attracted. When you're born again, you are given a new nature and God will take you up to heaven through the rapture. That is a done deal. It can never be severed. It can never be lost. But again, you're talking about experiential doctrine. And so when really the Pentecostal movement was born, in the early part of the 20th century, it was based on experience. Look, I spoke in tongues, therefore it must be true. Oh, this man was a member of our church, and now he uh, rejects Jesus. You see, he was saved, and, and now he's lost. No, if you have it, you can't lose it. If you lost it, you never had it. By this, we know they were of us. They remained with us. That's what John says, First John 2.19. You do not reject the faith if you're truly born again. So what you're talking about here is extra revelational. And so, you know, your pastor makes some statements, 70% of the people in this church, and I'm assuming he thinks that those, you know, those people are saved. They're not living right, so they're not going to heaven. That's sheer heresy. That's a false teacher. He's just a false teacher. I'm not trying to be unkind, brother. I'm just trying to be truthful with you. That is just sheer, unadulterated heresy. And it's wrong and it's bad doctrine. Why? Because it's not consistent 
with what God says. But these guys, you know, they get these text messages from God and you see them on TV and they're, you know, they're, they're in prayer and wait a minute, wait a minute, wait, God's speaking to me right now. There's someone out there who has a kidney problem and God is healing you right now. You know, yeah, there's a million people out there watching. I'm sure someone has a kidney problem. And, uh, but, you know, that's not some word from God. God is not giving revelation like that. And unfortunately, that's walked in the front door of the evangelical church. You get these women like Beth Moore who, you know, yeah, God was out there and he said, Beth, this is what I want you to do. And Beth, and she goes on in this big dialogue about God talking to her directly. My friend, that is pure, unadulterated heresy. Uh, Jesus Calling, a book that just sold millions of copies. That's heresy. Go on my website. I think that's still up there at searchofscriptures.org. Why that whole teaching is less than faithful to the Word of God. Your authority is the Bible. That's where you need to put your head in, and you need to be in a church where a pastor is opening the Scripture and contextually expounding the Word of God and not threatening the... Con- That's so manipulative. I can almost guarantee where this preacher is going to go on some issues and probably rooting in it is health and wealth and trying to grab your tithe and motivate you in that way to line his wallet because he has greed in his eyes. Anyway, I could go on, but I won't. Let's go to the next question. Uh, Hopefully we've got enough time for that call from Riverside, California. The Bible says Abraham offered his only Uh, son Isaac. That's too long. Too long. You got a shorter one? Uh, Let's see here. Hold on one second. Uh, We do want to go ahead and remind people that uh, there are a number of activities getting ready to start. The Women's Life is going to be starting at Community Bible Church. Yeah, so the uh, fall season will be raising godly boys. The spring season will be raising godly girls or something to that effect. Uh, But they are going to be five weeks in a row in the fall instead of alternating as before. And then five weeks in a row in the spring. So 10 weeks. It's a ministry that's based on Titus 2 where older women are teaching the next generation and equipping them to pass on the baton. And that's something that unfortunately is often ignored in women's ministry, but it's central to what God models as to how it should unfold in the local assembly. Uh, We also have Upward Sports that's coming. This is a sports ministry. Over 50% of the children who come are unchurched, and that's not total total shock to us because now approximately 80% of the children 12 and under no longer attend church in America. But the Upward Sports Ministry, it's football, tag football in the fall, in soccer in the spring. Great opportunity for uh, children, one, to get good exercise, learn biblical sportsmanship, and to be challenged with the claims of Christ. So you can go online at communitybiblechurch.org for details. And then Israel, God willing, is coming in September of 2019. The brochure will go on the website here, and within the next uh, two weeks, we'll have a promotional video that will be shown on the last Sunday in October and an informational meeting the first Sunday in September for those of you who are interested. You can call the church at 843-525-0089 if you want to be kept abreast of 525-0089. We're out of time, but thanks for being with us today here on The Bible Line. <laughs> 